0: Please turn with me in your Bible uh, to 2 Samuel 6. I do believe it might be on the screen behind me. That is a new thing for me, so I don't know. I'm learning to trust others. It's a challenge for me. Ask Doug. Uh, We are looking at the life of David. Uh, We will be continuing this series to spring break, and the final views of David's life will be his kingship. He's finally where he wants to be. He's the king. Um, Just to let you know what's happened since our last discussion, Saul and Jonathan were killed, and David was made king of the tribe of Judah. And seven years later, all of Israel came together and said, we want you to be our king. And he moves uh, or establishes uh, around the stronghold Jerusalem called the city of David. He makes that the capital, and he wants to bring God into the midst of this place And so he decides to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Israel. And that's actually to Jerusalem. That's a big thing. And in the Bible, when um, men or people take power, oftentimes you'll find they leave God behind when things are going really well. And so it's not a small thing that David, a man after God's own heart, would do this. That he would bring the Ark into Jerusalem saying, this is for God. I am serving God with my life, with my kingship, and it is something to have in the back of your mind. When things are going well for you, would you say that that's a time where you're really seeing God brought into the midst of your life? Or often, if you're like me, it's only when things get really difficult. So what we're going to hopefully learn this morning would be that we need to bring God in the center of everything we do uh, and give him full reign, but it's very challenging, and we'll see that in this passage. So 2 Samuel 6, verses 1 to 23, please follow along with me. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark, and David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nakon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez-Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. And it was told King David... The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place, inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offering and the peace offering, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of the servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will make merry before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to see the meaning of this passage, to see your beauty and your grace even in the midst of Dark, difficult tragedy. Help us to trust in you more and more. Help us to grow as your children. Amen. I wanted to avoid the illustration of Raiders of the Lost Ark, but how? Like this is the this is the Ark. And my first encounter with the Ark was Indiana Jones. Raise your hand if you've seen Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Hey, well, I now know a few people who I need to have over to watch this amazing movie. In the movie, Indiana, jo- Indiana Jones, played by, um, oh, I, don't, I shouldn't do this on the fly, Harrison Ford is an archaeologist, and he's going to go find the Ark of the Covenant, and he has, he has, the Germans are also after the Ark of the Covenant. And, and the reason they're after it, they think they've discovered the location, is the Germans, it takes place during World War II, they want it to become the power source for their, for their drive to take over the world. It's going to give them power. They hadn't read their Bibles very well because the Philistines tried this in 1 Samuel and it like, destroyed them. But they were going to try it. Well, at the very end of the movie, for those of you who haven't seen it, I, I do apologize. Uh, there's a moment where the, where the ark is uncovered, where the, li- the lid is lifted, and, and, Day- and Indiana and his friend, he warns her, look away. He has the wisdom to know. Don't stare at it. But all the bad guys look at it, and I'll never forget the face of that bad guy just melting. Back then they had no CGI computer, you know, it was like clay and wax, but his face just melting from looking at the ark. And I thought, and and the reason I think of that, not only was that my introduction to the ark, but in this passage, it does look like there's a temptation for David. By the way, is that image up there of the box? Just might as well throw that up there. There is a temptation for us, for David, to think we're going to do God a favor. This is something Dan Purdy put together. I'm just, so appreciate. That's not the Ark of the Covenant, by the way. I don't believe. Um, there's a temptation for us to take God and think we're sort of doing Him a favor by bringing Him into our world. Right? It's kind of like bumper sticker Christianity. If I, I'll put a bumper sticker on the car. I'll put a sticker here, or there. Nothing wrong with that. But as if to say, see God, I honor you. And yet what God was saying to David is, uh, I want more than that. I want you to give me your whole life, all of your worship. And so the question, I think, before David would be, is the the ark an artifact? Or is it, by the way, you can now take that down. We're getting used to this whole. Is the ark an artifact for you? Is, Is God an artifact for your life? Or are you being transformed by his presence? Is he everything to you? And what we see in this passage is for David, true, his, his spirituality becomes true, at least in this passage. We, we know that it ebbs and flows for all of us. But it becomes real and true when he approaches God in his holiness and his splendor, right, through mercy. So you cannot get to God's power until you understand his mercy. That's our theme for this morning. Uh, God is powerful But we must recognize his mercy. We're going to look at three things, false spirituality, true spirituality, and then making the switch. I'm using the term false spirituality in point one for this first passage, this first piece of information about David. Um, It sounds to me, when I first read it, and maybe for many of you, like this is a really hard passage. This is one of those passages where, I mean, here's a poor guy driving a cart, it stumbles, you know, he reaches back to steady it and he's dead. Like some of you are probably thinking, that's why I hate Christianity. Or maybe you're thinking, that's why the God of the Old Testament's hard for me to grasp. And I and I definitely agree and I can see where you're coming from. I think all of us are a little bit nervous about this God, and I think that's fair. But maybe if we can unpack it a little bit, you'll begin to see the mercy even in that action. So let me remind you of the story. Again, that David is setting out uh, from where the ark had been rested to go a short distance, uh, bring the ark into the city of Jerusalem, into a tent he'll set up. And he seems to be valuing the ark by doing this. But I want to just, uh, I, I did a little bit of study. I went into my concordance and just looked up every use of the word ark And uh, just to kind of let you know what it is, the ark was made of acacia wood. Um, It was outlined in gold. On the top is a a lid, which is actually, the Hebrew for that word is propitiation. So it's the mercy seat. The idea was never that God was in the ark, but rather it was his footstool. That when, when used in worship, God promised to be present with Israel above the ark. And it was his footstool. And, and when the priests would come into the holiest of holies, like it was very rare, and they would be completely washed, and they would come in with blood from sin offerings being sprinkled all over uh, the artifacts in the room. There would be incense, like a cloud, that's sort of there to kind of protect them. Think a little bit of, remember Moses on Sinai, when he says, I want to see you, and God says, okay, I'll let you see me, but you can only see my backside. And you're going to be hid in a cleft. I'm going to protect you. And so the point is, is to come into the presence of God is highly, highly dangerous. I was listening to a pastor recently, and he brought up these, I, I don't think I'd ever heard this in this way, but he talked about the law as being either descriptive or prescriptive. Now, a prescriptive law would be don't wear a white after Labor Day. Am I getting that right? Or have I lost that one? You know, those kind of rules. Amy's like, yeah, yeah, that's right. (laughs) Sorry. You know, there's these rules that we follow, right? If you're going to go to this place, you have to wear a tie. That's prescriptive. Descriptive is if you touch that electric wire, you will be fried. So don't do that. It's powerful. I think that many of the laws we think that are prescriptive and sort of like why is God giving all these rules are actually descriptive. God is saying, the Ark of the Covenant is so powerful, let me tell you how to handle it. And as I read these passages, like the very second time it's ever mentioned in the Bible, in Exodus 25, it says, and you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the Ark to carry the Ark by them. So the Ark has these golden rings on both sides. The craftsmen who made the Ark made poles. And in fact, later it says those poles should never come out of the ark. Is that prescriptive? Is God getting kind of fancy? No. Why? What do you do the moment you hit a train track or you're about to hit a train track and you have a cup of coffee? You grab it. Why? Because you are a better steadier of coffee than the car. Even though you have shocks and the greatest tires, you know instinctively this is going to spill, right? Well, God is thinking that way. If you all go make a cart and try to transport this amazing thing It will tilt. So he's being descriptive and helpful by saying, take poles, have men carry it like this. And you find that David completely ignored that. Look at the verse um, 3. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart. A new cart doesn't mean just, hey, this is brand new. It does mean that. But it mostly means this is like set apart for this use. Like this cart was built to move the ark. The problem is, God had said three things about the ark. Do not look, do not touch it, and don't take it in a cart. Like, if you had to summarize the rules, those are the three things. And here comes David and his people moving it in this ark, and it's, and it's jumping around and moving it in the cart. I, I, don't, I, I do this all the time. I think it was one of the Superman movies that introduced me to nitroglycerin. And I, I was just amazed that there was this kind of liquid that if you just shook it a little bit, maybe they overstated it, it's Hollywood, but the idea that if you just shook it, it would blow things up. And the memory I have, and again, I don't know what movie this is, so you can't hold me to this, is just like the, the, the people handling it with care, right? Just very carefully. And I would have been, you know, this is, this is nitroglycerin. It could explode. So here is this arc that is powerful, and by just throwing it in the back of a cart and driving it says that you're trivializing the power of God, right? And I think we, if we want to glean some insight from our lives, often we do that with God, especially when things are going well. David was at the height. I mean, he had just been made king. He's built the city. In the next chapter, he's going to build this gorgeous palace for himself. And, and, and for him to bring God into his world was almost a favor. And so the question for you and I is: Do we often bring God into our lives more for us than for God? Um, I I preached this sermon at at Grace Fort Collins and Ruf. So this is, and I had to get rid of most of my illustrations because I've poached them from that old sermon, though I've never preached it here. And so I'm now using them in their original context. And you're like, "Oh, I've heard that illustration." Well, this is the original use. I had to get rid of most of them, but this is the only other carryover, Uh, and it's the the story that Spurgeon tells uh, of a carrot farmer. He uh, comes out to his field, and he sees the greatest carrot that has ever grown in his field, and he immediately thinks, I want to take this to the king, and he does. He presents it to the king, and it's well-received. The king, even with tears in his eyes, looks at the carrot farmer and thanks him and says, I want to give you... The fields adjacent to your fields are my fields, and they are ripe and ready, and I want you to have them. And the farmer goes away just overwhelmed and blessed. Well, there was a man in the court of the king who overheard this and thought, aha, I've got an idea. So he goes and gets his best horse and brings it to the king. the next day, king, here's my horse. And the king takes the reins of the horse and looks at him and is very pleased and says, thank you, and then begins to walk away with the horse and hand them off to a someone who might take him to the stable. And he gets a distance away and he looks back and notices the man standing there. And he looks back and says, oh, let me guess. You thought by giving me the horse that I would do what I did for the carrot farmer, right? You thought by giving me your horse, I would turn and hand you a better horse or maybe all of my horses. Well, here's the problem. When the carrot farmer gave me a carrot, he was giving me, the king, a carrot. But when you gave me the horse, you were giving yourself a horse. You were just simply trying to get something for you. Is that what we do with God? Our, when things are going well, when, we, when life is moving like for David, and we bring God into our midst, are we not often tempted? And I don't mean all the time. I don't mean there are a few of you who always do this, and several of you never do this. I'm suggesting that every single one of us at seasons of our lives or portions of our week, however you want to look at it, find ourselves taking God and, and literally putting him in a box from our perspective and not finding any power from him, thinking we're doing him the favor by even mentioning him, by, by even saying his name to somebody or by even praying we're somehow, you know, we're being the good ones. We're sort of losing his power in our lives, and that's a, an example of false spirituality. I think the, the people that are most prone to this are pastors, right? I mean, I went to seminary. I got my, I'm ordained. I have an You know, you get the whole setup, and it's very easy to be like, well, you all know I'm a Christian, right? I mean, that's the deal. Like That's how I have my job. And so it's very hard and very, or very easy for those in ministry, Shane, you, right, not you, it's very tempting, if we're not careful, to take our office and let that become our shield. I would add that successful churches, churches that have tons of people, might feel more freedom to start tweaking the message of the gospel, because people are rolling in anyway. Right? How does that play out in your life? Where are you prone to just assume, because of your position, your history, your conduct, the things you say on Facebook, whatever it is that makes you feel like you've got the God thing figured out. This passage shows us that that's not how God operates. And when Uzzah reaches out and touches that, that ark and dies, and God's anger is kindled, it's kindled because that was always going to happen, you can't touch the ark like that, right? You can't do it. So how do we, uh, what's the opposite of this false uh, spirituality? It's, and I'm using obviously Schaefer's term, true spirituality. What's, what changes? Why does David change and what changes in his conduct? Um, we, if you know the story, you read it, you remember David has the, car, has the ark taken to this home of a man named Obed-Edom. I don't know who that is, but somehow he flourishes. I feel bad for him. Because he's willing to, t- I'll take it. And then things go well, then David's like, I want it back. It's like, wait a minute, what's going on? Uh, maybe it didn't go down quite like that. But when he's flourishing, and his home is flourishing, his household, that was a signal to David that God is good. God is still a God of blessing. That this ark is still needed in your midst. And and he goes to round two. And so round two begins in verses 12, and it goes to the end of the chapter and it says uh, David um, begins to again bring the ark into Israel, but there's a few changes I want to note. What are the changes? The first one is: look at verse um, five. It says, "And David and all the house of Israel were, were making merry before the Lord." That's that's the guy at the party, at the dance party. You know, the 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 uh, oh the. Um, Charlie Brown dancing in the Christmas, you know, the kid that was just kind of, you know, that's what I envision. David was making merry. There's some music. There's a cart, 30,000 people. It's really nice. Look at the next description. Verse 13, or verse 14, and David danced before the Lord with all his might. That's that person at the dance party that you're like, I sort of wish I could dance like that. But do they see themselves, you know, the one that just is like just going nuts? But yet you have this kind of like jealousy of like, ah, I'm the, I wish I could look like, th-. you know, that's David. What caused this change? Well, we're going to talk about that later. But this, I want to just note this change. Secondly, and, and really most importantly, David is wearing a linen ephod. That's not a lot of covering. But the reason he's wearing that is David has become a priest, David is not just sitting in his kingship mode, having this thing happen before him, just kind of sitting on the back row, worshiping. He has now thrust himself to the front of the procession and said, I will be a priest. And he danced crazy and wildly. So we have two principles there. When you have true spirituality, you have confidence to dance like David, but you're also priestly. When the, when the Reformation occurred, one of the key concepts that came out of it that we have to remember, I want to beg you guys to remember, is that you are priests, the priesthood of believers. I'm not a priest. I'm a sinner preaching to sinners. I'm a dying man preaching to dying people. Cheer up, right? Yay. I'm one of you. I'm the guy that you all have said, hey, for this week, do you mind? I have a job, so if you would just go study your scripture and, and give us a sermon, that'd be great. I'm not better. I'm not higher. A priest is typically over, right? You are priests because of what Jesus has done. If you are in Christ, you are a priest wherever you operate, wherever you are, and David was willing to take that role on, and I would say to an exhausting levels, um, In verse 18, after he had finished offering the burnt offerings, he goes and he serves to every man and woman. I mean, to every person it sounds like. I don't know how that was functionally possible, but he gave them all a a portion of meat and a cake of bread. He's serving them a meal. He's serving them the blessing of God. So he's a priest. But then there's this third thing. So when you have this true spirituality beginning to happen, you'll know it. Why you have confidence? You actually see yourself as a priest uh, or a priestess, if you want to use that term, as a woman. We are all in our lives serving people. We're seeing their needs first. We're longing for Christ to bless them. But thirdly, we draw condemnation. My favorite part of this passage is this is this issue with Michael. I don't know. That's not my favorite part, but it's fascinating when you get the Old Testament to give you the sort of the tidbits and the dialogue. Michael was the wife given to to David from Saul. It was Saul's daughter. After he killed Goliath, that was his. I know it sounds archaic, and I'm sorry I, I didn't write this, but that was his reward, and that was his wife. It was his first wife. Well, when David flees Saul to to not be murdered, Saul takes Michael and gives her to another man. So when David becomes king and Saul is now dead, one of the first things he does, or one of the first few things, is he has Michael brought back to his house. But clearly they didn't have reconciliation or a great marriage at this point. So she's watching him with contempt. And I want to draw your attention just because of the fascinating lines that she gives. Uh, It starts by saying in verse um, 16, as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window. So she wasn't with them. She wasn't part of the celebration. She's watching from a distance. And saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him. When you are filled with the Spirit, when you are living out your calling as a priest, when you are confident, you will have people despise you. Don't go after it. That's easy to do. Don't go get people to despise you and think you're doing great. But understand that that's part of the package, right? And listen to the dialogue Um, in verse 20, he returns to his household, and she says in verse 20 again, part B, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows, shamelessly uncovers himself. Shame. She's saying, David, you did this like vulgar fellows your your actions are you're trying to draw attention to yourself you're even being sexual which is nowhere in David's mind right how would you feel if you in your mind i'm at the height of my walking with jesus i'm 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 making every effort i'm and some you come back and some one of the closest people in your world looks at you and goes how you made a spectacle of yourself you should be ashamed of yourself who are those voices in your life? Where do those voices come from? Are you aware of those people? Even if they're in their grave now. Maybe you hear them still. A grandparent, a dead parent. Maybe it's a spouse, a child, a, a coworker, a boss telling you, you're not as good as you think. You're not all, all that. How do you handle those kind of comments? Well, listen to how David handles it. Um, it's probably one of the greatest responses in the Bible. I'd have been like, what? You think so? You're telling me that it was flapping? I didn't know. That I, I tried my best to keep everything covered. Not David. What does he say? It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all of his house to appoint me as prince over Israel. Identity, Christ. Identity, I'm called by God to be the prince over Israel is what David is saying. And I will make merry before the Lord. And look at verse 22. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. Right? And I will be abased in your eyes. What is he saying? Is he saying it's good to be bad? No. What he's saying is what you're bothered by is going to come in droves. What you think is bad, which is really good, is going to continue as I walk with Jesus. And it's gonna come out more. And do you and I have the confidence to state that and to talk like that? Okay, how do we make the switch? How do we switch over from our moments of false spirituality, nominal Christianity moments, seasons, to seasons of truly walking, experiencing confidence, scoff, but this priestliness, and we find it in the passage. I just want to draw a few places. Um, the fact that David not only dances is, is a major d- adjustment, but the biggest thing was in verse 13. Well, the poles, okay? That's the first thing. Put the poles in. Men were carrying the cart. Did you notice that? Dan- David's dancing, acting like a priest. But after six steps, he sacrifices an ox and a fattened animal. That's actually not required when you study the movement of the, of the cart. Um, but here's what is known about the ark. That mercy seat, again, called the Hebrew um, word there, um, well, it's propitiation in Greek. So the Septuagint, which is the, Hebrew, the uh, Old Testament written in Greek many years before the New Testament was written, also uses the word propitiation there as the seat of God, the mercy seat. And we find uh, that concept of propitiation in Romans 3, starting in 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. The righteousness righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. When David was sacrificing those animals, he was living out the absolute freedom that comes in knowing you are guilt-free, you are cleansed, you are safe. He had absolutely zero fear. He did not think God had gotten any less powerful. That never crossed his mind. In fact, he was able to more embrace the power of God that can drop you dead by just touching the edge of the ark, yet he by following the ways God wanted it moved and by sacrificing these animals he was able to engage the reality that he was guilt free are you guilt free just looking at your daily lives how often do you feel guilt false guilt how often do you just question yourself how often do you wonder if what you're doing is pleasing so often I think what hinders our desire to switch into this mode of true spirituality is we, we do not see ourselves the way God sees us. We see ourselves the way the accuser wants us to see, the Michael, in our so, uh, not in our hearts, but in the world of Satan, who's whispering, are you sure? I mean, are you sure Jesus loves you? I mean, I know he loves you, but does he really love you? Is, is Jesus really for you? Do you doubt that? I doubt that. I struggle with doubt. Not that I'm going to heaven, not that I'm a Christian, but in my day-to-day life, I'm often convinced that what I'm doing is maybe possibly outside of where God would have it and that his, and the blood of Christ maybe wouldn't cover that or doesn't mean what I thought it means, and I need to be preaching this gospel to myself first and foremost Every day, and I think you do too. Do you believe those words? I want to, and I've asked Dan to actually bring this one up, Hebrews 10. Where is this in the Bible, this idea that David's freedom comes from these sacrifices? It comes from his, his knowledge of the future um, blood of Christ? Look at Hebrews 10. Therefore, brother, since we have confidence Can you, can you imagine going into the Old Testament era and just walking right into the holy of Holies? That's what that passage just says you can do. Not trivializing God, not trivializing him at all, but recognizing that all of the cleaning, all of the washing, all of the ceremony, all of the pomp, all of the circumstances points to one thing, Jesus Christ on the cross. And if you have him, you have the ability and the confidence to enter the holy places. And that should respond, your response to that ought to be, I would hope, some dancing. In fact, I thought we could end the last few minutes with just a bunch of, I've got some ephods we're going to pass out. Wouldn't that be amazing? Shane wants that, you know. Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I want to tell you right now, I promise you, please hear me, every one of you that is a Christian has a Michael in your ear. What are you doing? Why would you believe that? You've even had a quiet time all week. How could you possibly believe Jesus loves you? Remember what you did yesterday? Remember the thought you just had just five seconds ago? You are, you are vulgar. Do you have that voice? I beg you to have the voice of Jesus. Let David's words wash over you. Right? Let the words from Hebrews wash over you. That you, because of the blood of Christ, you are cleansed from a guilty conscience. Don't wait for the proof to believe it. Don't get it backwards. Believe it now. Rest in it today. Then you'll see your life will begin to be filled with confidence, priestliness, and the ability to face those scoffers, even if that's in your mind. Let us close in prayer. Jesus, I and I think we struggle with trivializing your blood. We read the word sacrifice in the Old Testament so often we just kind of glaze over it. We read the word cross in the New Testament and often we glaze over it. And I really believe, Jesus, it's not because we don't care. I believe we struggle with unbelief. And I pray that you would help us to believe freshly this morning and maybe for the first time for some of us that your gospel is true. Lord, David did nothing spectacular to earn what he was doing in that second part of the, of the passage. Lord, there's nothing we can do to earn righteous living or dancing or loving our neighbors well. <clears throat> it actually only comes when we stop trying to earn it and we believe your gospel. Lord, will you give us that view? This morning as we take this supper, will you f- open our eyes to, to the reality of the cleansing and the washing we have received. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.